Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. We're delighted to have with us in this episode Robert Costa. He's the chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News, and he previously reported on politics for The Washington Post. He's also co-author with Bob Woodward of Peril, and perhaps most importantly, uh, he is a scholar this year at the Center for Politics at UVA. Thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Great to be with you, and it's an honor to be part of the University of Virginia's Center for Politics and the community you've all built around politics and civics. Also co-hosting with us today is Dr. Larry Sabato. He's the founder and director of the Center for Politics. Yeah, I second everything Bob said. Um, uh, it is indeed a great honor for him. I agree with that. We're, ha- we're happy, to, happy <laughs> to have him. It's, uh, he is everywhere doing everything. So uh, this is a great bonus for the center and for our students and for those listening to this podcast. And also joining us is Emily Horn. She is a first year at the University of Virginia studying politics and is also a reporter for the Cavalier Daily. Bob, we are at a critical moment in history and the stakes for the future of our nation's experiment in self-governance are high. I want to start by asking you, what do you see as the role of the news media in this moment? And how are you approaching the way you cover elections and politics to meet the needs of this moment? Well, again, it's great to be with you all and to have a conversation today, but to begin a conversation that will last all year at the University of Virginia Center for Politics, talking to students, faculty members, members of the community about these important issues. And as a reporter for CBS News, covering campaigns, elections, American democracy, I do think about the question you just posed a lot. What is our role? What is the best thing we can do? To me, it comes down to one thing, tell the truth, tell the truth. And that means, at least with respect to my position, reporting as much as possible about what is happening in this country, do it in a way that's unvarnished, but logical, clear, so people understand the churning times we are living in. They understand why decisions are being made by people in power. They understand the movements that are growing in this country, even if they sometimes raise uncomfortable or incendiary issues to make sure people are aware of what's happening. And because we are living in tumultuous times, I often think of presentation as well to make sure I am presenting things as clearly and succinctly as possible because people are overwhelmed by information, sometimes disinformation in this time and age. And you have to recognize that you can't go on and on or make assumptions about what people know. You have to constantly be cognizant that you need to explain things, but you never want to patronize. And that's sometimes a nuanced thing to do as a journalist but you wanna make sure you respect the audience at all times, but also don't get carried away uh, by being too much of an insider in terms of how you process and share information. Bob, uh, 
one thing that occurs to me in watching your coverage and that of your colleagues, uh, both at CBS and also at other other networks, is it's difficult, as you just suggested, to separate out for people all of these investigations into Trump and the Trump organization and this one and that one and the other one. And even for those of us who follow it uh, assiduously, religiously, uh, dangerously, uh, it, it just seems to me that uh, you do have to explain very carefully to people what this investigation is and how it relates, if at all, to the other investigations. And you know better than I do, uh, that's when the uh, clicking starts. When people start turning to to other channels, if they get confused or they can't uh, understand what it is you're talking about, or they've missed the preliminaries to it. Uh, do you have problems with the uh, producers or the anchors or others? And first of all, trying to get airtime for what is a complicated investigation. And second, how do you manage to summarize this in a way that connects with people uh, and also explains the importance of what is going on. Those are important questions. I often think about when you go into a doctor's office and you're sitting there on the chair or the table and the doctor's going over a chart and sometimes using phrases that you do not comprehend at all. But the doctor has a professional uh, way about them and you just kind of go along with what the doctor's saying if you, if you don't understand what exactly he or she is saying. But uh, at the end of the day, you do want to have some clarity about what the, the doctor is saying. And so what I try to do is think about phrasing a lot. I don't like to, to make things simplified, in it, but you want to make things clear. I'll give you a quick example. In recent weeks, the Trump investigation uh, based in Florida about his use and handling of records that are marked as classified has become a court fight between the Justice Department and Trump's lawyers about who will have access to the evidence. And part of this court fight is a discussion over what's called a special master. When people hear the term special master, frequently their eyes glaze over. It's not a familiar term. It sounds like it's legal jargon. So what I try to do in my coverage is not refer to it repeatedly as a special master, which confuses me, it confuses other people, but talk about it in a crisper term, an outside lawyer, because that's what it is. It's an outside lawyer or judge who will oversee the evidence. When people hear special master, they go, what is that? But when they hear an outside attorney or judge, much more comprehensible to them. And that's an important part of being a journalist today as you cover these flurry of investigations. How do you quickly make news clear to people? And I often have to do what I call a step back 30 seconds into a broadcast piece or a minute or two minutes in, or if you're doing a print piece, make sure it's in the seventh or eighth paragraph. You can say more broadly, this news comes as former President Trump faces legal scrutiny on multiple fronts, whether it's the New York State Attorney General, the Manhattan District Attorney, the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney's Grand Jury, the ongoing Capitol Hill Congressional Select Committee investigation, and two, at least two grand juries in Washington looking at different 
aspects of former President Trump's conduct. And you just kind of list them all out there as a way of understanding that this fits as one of these uh, pieces of the Trump puzzle in news coverage right now. And sometimes they are not part of the same story. Uh, and you just need to make that understandable to the viewer. And it's not easy to do, that's for sure. But what, Bob, I will tell you, because I do, I do, I record the news programs. Even when I travel, I come back and review them because I like to see what is coming across to the public because that's going to shape their their views of all of this. You are very clear. Uh, I understand what you're talking about. I understand what it is. And if it connects to others, great. And then if it doesn't, you don't mention it. You don't try and do a comprehensive dissertation on all of Trump's legal troubles because it would take a half hour just to list them all. Uh, it's really interesting. And in a way, and I don't want to compare anything to Watergate because uh, I know you're with, you're with Bob Woodward, who you're, I think, bringing down here. Uh, to, for uh, questioning by students and others, right? I think you two are appearing at some point, or that's what I was told. I look forward to that. Uh, but uh, in this one way, Bob, I think that uh, Trump's troubles are similar to the Watergate affair or scandal. And it was really scandals. There were so many pieces to that, all operating at the same time, uh, with sometimes different grand juries and different prosecutors and certainly different witnesses and, and uh, different people indicted. It was incredibly complicated to keep up with it. And that was the challenge the media had then. How do you get the message across to people when they literally will have to devote several hours to understanding what the basis is? And it was a long process. It was stretched over years. And uh, for all we know, this is probably going to be similar. It could be stretched over years. I had the uh, pleasure of doing a recent CBS Sunday morning profile of an author named Garrett Graff, who is now based in Vermont. He wrote a book called Watergate, A New History. And he his book gets at this point about Watergate. It was so sprawling and it wasn't just the congressional investigation or the grand jury. There was, for example, uh, a different separate investigation of Attorney General uh, John Mitchell and his conduct. And there are all these side probes, just this, in the same way we have kind of these side probes going on with former President Trump. And the, what, the question I would always ask, as Bob Woodward and I worked on our book, Peril, whereas I'm doing our reporting now for CBS News is, how does it come back to the president? Because Woodward and Bernstein's famous title of their 1974 book, All the President's Men, gets at your point. I mean, there are so many men and women now around former President Trump that it can become this blizzard of names that's hard to follow. And you wonder sometimes, is it worth caring about a former deputy press secretary in the Trump White House? So what's their name again? They testified, didn't they, or something like that. And to me, most people will sit up a little straighter in their chairs when you bring it back to the president. At the end of the day, it's the presidency, the person who's in that office that matters more. They're the person with the executive power. And so, so many scenes in peril, it's about what's Trump doing? What's he saying? What's Biden saying? What's, what's he doing? And th with these investigations, it's really about what are we learning new 
about the person who held the highest elected office in the U.S. government and not you have to report deeply on all the other people and you want to break news and you want to have a full understanding of all these different side investigations and the subpoenas that seem to go out by the hour by the grand jury these days. But you have to remember that the subpoenas being issued, witnesses, the depositions, unless it's breaking new ground on the biggest players, it's important, but not the story. And that makes a lot of sense because it is all about Trump. And, and that's where you connect with average voters who have full-time jobs and families and doing other things. And if you're lucky to get them to watch a half-hour news show. So they, they need to know quickly, how does this relate to the most important story? And the most important story is Donald Trump, which is exactly the way he wants it. <laughs> so I don't think he's displeased with the fact that he is uh, still on the stage, center stage, day after day after day, often preceding coverage of whatever Biden's doing as the incumbent president. It's, it's really remarkable. Emily, come on in here and, and jump in. You have written about and discussed Mr. Trump's response to the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville and Paul Ryan's views of his remarks. Can you speak to the connections between Mr. Trump's response to the Unite the Right rally and his relationship and responses to the far right and rising political violence? It's a great question. And you think back five years now to the tragedy in Charlottesville, such a wonderful city. I love coming to UVA, coming to Charlottesville, and it pains me to think about that summer and those fateful days uh, of violence in Charlottesville. But for the Republican Party, and, and when the history is fully written of the GOP and the Trump era, that will be a marker of note. Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, a traditional Republican conservative who never seemed to love Trump personally, had a, a cracking of sorts of his relationship uh, over Trump's response the way Trump uh, addressed what happened in Charlottesville, the rhetoric he used, the words he chose. Ryan wanted Trump, based on our reporting, to be much more definitive in how he spoke about white nationalists, about how he spoke about violence, to disown it in a way that wasn't muddled in the eyes of some, as Ryan feared it was. But what's important about that moment, too, politically, is that it, it was a cracking of Trump's relationship with Republican leaders, but it wasn't a total break because Trump, Ryan, Leader McConnell still functioned for the next couple years before Ryan left Congress to pass legislation, to work together. As our book shows, that relationship was often strained. Uh, but Trump, because of his hold over the political base, because of his hold over the presidency, was never run out of office by his own party in the same way you think about Nixon in 1974 facing uh, the, the burden of Watergate on his shoulders, uh, all this uh, scandal, uh, alleged criminality of him and his associates at that time. Uh, Barry Goldwater, the then Arizona conservative, and others from the Senate GOP go to see Nixon they say it's over, you have to resign, or they at least nudge him in that direction. And that was a seminal moment for the Republican Party where they purged their own president 
based on their assessment of his conduct and his standing with the country and his own party. In 2017, after Charlottesville, you had, uh, in a way, an echo of that August 74 moment, but not a full repetition. Ryan, uncomfortable, but not prepared to yank Trump out or to form a coalition to pull him out. And that was partly an acceptance based on our reporting of his view of political reality. Uh, And he and McConnell kept working with Trump uh, in the coming years to pass tax legislation, other legislation uh, in the Senate to nominate conservative judges to across the judiciary and to the Supreme Court. And so there was a transactional relationship that continued and persisted inside the GOP, even as the personal connection between Republican leaders and Trump uh, frayed almost by the day. I want to follow up on that question, if I may. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit how, you know, that uh, transactional relationship uh, has really, and, and Mr. Trump as well, has changed the Republican Party. And, you know, what does that really pretend for the future of, of American politics? When I was growing up in the 1990s as a young guy, uh, the Republican Party was the party of small government. It was Newt Gingrich in the Republican Revolution of 1994. It was internationalist, George H.W. Bush from 89 to 93, overseeing the fall of the Soviet Union, fall of the Berlin Wall. It was Reaganite in its articulation of freedom, free markets. Uh, Essentially, the Wall Street Journal editorial page come to light, mixed with some pugilism from the Gingrich ranks and, and a hint of populism. But it was not the Pat Buchanan version of the Republican Party that we saw from 1992. It wasn't Ross Perot, the business outsider, independent, conservative type we saw in 1992. In 1992, the party still nominated Bush uh, for re-election, though he lost to Clinton. And it it nominates uh, populist but traditional conservatives in Gingrich and his ilk in 94. It goes again in a traditional direction in 96, with Bob Dole, then of course, George W. Bush, the son of the former president, who works at times to expand government and expand the footprint of the United States abroad. Donald Trump harkens back to the Buchanan campaign of 92, but even further back, I would argue, as a reporter to the time of Joe McCarthy, to this kind of divisive approach to politics, us versus them, nationalism now at the fore. And so you saw Trump couple together all these different strands from American politics to upend what the Republican Party represented. And he entered politics, and timing is everything sometimes in politics, at a critical moment in the summer of 2015, where as someone who's covered the Republican base for a long time, the base had become exhausted by traditional conservatism, frustrated with the response to the economic collapse in 2008 with the bailouts of uh, different Wall Street firms, frustrated with the Republican establishment's uh, embrace of immigration legislation that would give more of a people, more people, migrants and access uh, to to citizenship or legal status at some point, frustration with the way the party seemed to be moving toward a Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. And when you saw Trump at that first debate hosted by Fox News, almost alone, ideologically, temperamentally, on a stage full of more than a dozen other rivals who seem to all share a similar profile. 
It gave Trump an opening to speak to the Republican base and say, I'm different. And Trump did change the party in a fundamental way, not just in his, I think of Peter Baker's new book with Susan Glasser, the divider, not just in terms of his divisive approach to politics, but on ideology, he will be remembered for moving the Republican Party from being free trade at its core to being protectionist on trade. And on immigration, he moved the party from being more open to a border discussion about a path to citizenship to a party that was restrictionist on immigration and had Stephen Miller, a former top advisor to Senator Jeff Sessions, as the chief policy advisor to the president of the United States on immigration and trade. And then, of course, on foreign policy to move from that George H.W. Bush internationalism to nationalism and America alone, America first. That was a total sea change in Republican politics. And Trump was not your natural messenger for all of this. In fact, he almost ran, for, he flirted with the presidential campaign in 1999, where he was, uh, or he was for abortion rights in the way he wasn't later against abortion rights. Long story short, he has changed his positions over the years, but the timing he came in to run for president in 2015 gave him this opportunity, historic opportunity to change the whole engine of a party that had been pretty well defined for years. Bob, as you um, as you plan out your 2024 coverage, because you you're clearly deeply involved in that at CBS as well. Uh, first of all, how do you manage it when we don't know whether Biden is running for reelection? For sure, I just saw a bulletin from something uh, saying that uh, the White House is already planning his reelection campaign. Um, which may or may not be true. You never know what's really going on, or maybe it's a contingency, but we don't know whether he's running. We don't know whether Trump really is running or whether this is all a front for keeping him center stage. Uh, uh, he thinks helping him avoid legal charges and so on uh, without knowing whether Biden's running and whether Trump's running. Uh, are you going to follow all the shadow campaigns that are going on? Because there are at least a dozen of them counting both parties together. People who are, who are going to run, in fact, some of them I think will run on the Republican side, whether Trump does or not. They're looking forward to engaging with Trump. I don't, I doubt anybody seriously runs on the Democratic side if Biden is determined to get the nomination and run again. But how do you do that? How do you cover uh, two different realities, almost parallel universes, and help people to understand that. I think about it like fishing. And so I have all of these fishing lines out in both parties to rising national contenders, where I'm trying every day, sometimes never to be reported. It's almost just like sitting on a boat with a line out, trying to understand who who comprises the inner circle of a Republican contender who might run or might not run, whether it's Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, Josh Hawley of Missouri, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, all of these names, Liz Cheney, uh, the Wyoming lawmaker, vice chair of the January 6th committee. So some of these people might run, some of these people might not run, depending on what former President Trump does. But as a reporter, you have to be ready 
for different possibilities. And you have to understand the world and the people around these contenders. So when they do decide to run or not run, you're not just suddenly having to scramble to have comprehension of what drives them, what motivates them, what's their policy agenda. So a lot of my job is not what you see on television. A lot of my job when I'm doing it well is spending two to three hours a day either making phone calls to people on background or off the record to learn more or to read and to sit there and read profiles, articles from local papers about who these politicians are, what they're doing. And that extends to the Democratic side as well. President Biden, based on everything I've seen, based on all the reporting I've done, is preparing to run for re-election with Vice President Harris. That said, my motto as a reporter is assume nothing. So if that dynamic ever should change, I need to be ready on Pete Buttigieg. I need to be ready on Gavin Newsom, the California governor, and so many others on the Democratic side. And so that's my job really is to prepare. So the audience, let's say uh, President, former President Trump decides in six months he's not going to run for whatever reason. You just can't start in early 2023 saying, oh, let me figure out who, who works for Yunkin or who works uh, for Senator Cruz or uh, uh, Governor Abbott of Texas. You have to know that because these campaigns move fast. Um, and that worked, it has worked for me in the past because I think back, I mean, I've been doing this since 2009. I think back, for example, to 2010, 2011, I got to know a businessman named Herman Cain, who's now unfortunately dead. He, he died during COVID. Um, but he was someone no one thought would be a serious contender, but I got to know him, his people, and then for this brief time in 2011, 2012, as you, I'm sure, recall, Larry, there, there was a Herman Cain moment. And when there was a Herman Cain moment and some controversy with his candidacy, I was able to deeply report it because I had all the fishing lines out for over a year. That, that's a great example. And you reminded me of something I haven't uh, remembered in a long time. 999. Uh, let, let me ask if I could ask just one quick follow up. I know we're running out of time, but uh, you mentioned Liz Cheney. And I've been trying to figure this out myself and thinking about what she could do and how she could do it without actually aiding Trump's getting the nomination and winning the general election. Do you have any guesses about or maybe you have information about what she's going to do and how she's going to do it? Because she's going to do something. She started, I was out in Wyoming for a week covering her in Jackson Hole. Not the worst assignment. When, uh, they say... Costa, we need you to go to Jackson, Wyoming. You go, okay. So the negative thing about Jackson. Don't forget Hawaii, Bob. Don't, don't forget lots goes on in Hawaii. They need to send you there twice so a year. So the only thing, this is not a complaint, just, this is just an observation. When you're doing the CBS morning program, CBS mornings from Jackson, that means you're waking up at 4 a.m. in Jackson, uh, which is a beautiful morning in Jackson, but it's early uh, because of the time change. Um Liz Cheney is someone who has to make a decision should she decide to run for president and in terms of how she's going to do it. Uh, talking to some of her friends, Larry, her, her allies, uh, she is going to mull whether to run against Trump in a primary to make a point, 
knowing that's probably an uphill climb to win the nomination. But you never know, especially in a crowded field, would be her argument for doing that. And she would want to be on the stage, potentially, to challenge Trump to his face in a Republican primary contest. Um, and, and in a sense, knowing and covering her for a bit, and I did a, I had a CBS Sunday morning profile of her where we went in depth on a lot of these issues. She's the kind of person, I believe, who at times would want to be on that Republican stage confronting Trump, especially if the committee has never had a chance to have a deposition from Trump. He has, he has ridiculed the committee at every turn. That would give her an opportunity to take him on in a way she couldn't uh, with the committee. That all being said, her allies and friends tell me that she also could run as an independent. And the real brief way of understanding that possibility is if the Democratic Party, for whatever reason, uh, doesn't move toward Biden again, if he decides not to run, of course, our reporting shows he's planning to run, but let's say he doesn't run for whatever reason, and the party moved to the left and nominated uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez or moved towards someone like Ro Khanna from California, a very progressive former chair, co-chair of the Bernie Sanders campaign. If the Democratic Party moved left further from Biden and the Republican Party moved toward Trump or toward a Trump-type Republican, could there be an opportunity for a third party candidate to actually put together a winning coalition in the electoral college. It's always been difficult. You, you're the, you're the expert on this, Larry, not me in terms of third party candidacies and the history of all this, but uh, that, that would maybe be almost like a, it'd be unusual to have a strong third party independent candidate. We haven't really seen that since Perot. Uh, and, but that's the other path possibly. Yeah, that's interesting. I had not thought about the fact that the parties could nominate such polarizing candidates ideologically, whether it's Biden or Trump, that there's room for Liz Cheney. Although I must tell you, I've heard this scenario uh, about every two or three presidential elections since I was growing up in the Eisenhower years. It predates you, I think, by a decade or so. Uh, I'm kidding, but people talk about it. And it just never comes together the way they think it's going to come together. And people are so tied to their party labels now. I think Emily has a follow-up question here about Representative Liz Cheney. Emily, do you want to ask your question? Speaking to the Trump investigations and the committee hearings, when you look at someone such as Liz Cheney, whose political career suffered after taking a stand against Mr. Trump, how might this impact the ability of elected officials and the public to hold leaders accountable with the goal of preserving our system of self-governance? It's a really intriguing question because on one hand, those who have supported Trump's impeachment in the Republican Party have seen their careers rattle, whether it's Congresswoman Cheney being defeated in a primary in recent weeks or other members of that group in the House GOP uh, re- choosing to retire or being beat in primaries. It's certainly a rough road uh, for some of those who have taken that position. And as some of my Republican sources who are Trump allies, especially in the House and Senate, watch all of that, uh, it does instill uh, a sense among some of these elected officials that they don't want to break with Trump. They want, even if they don't like Trump personally, if they don't like him politically, they don't want to rupture him 
or be seen as antagonistic in fear of antagonizing his core supporters, who many of them believe they need to win primary elections. And I learned time and time again that so many politicians whose lives are dedicated to winning office really want to stay in office. And I don't say that cynically, it's just the reality. And so many of them are calculating day to day how to stay in office. And they don't see every decision as a moral choice, but as a political calculation. And every decision, I would say they see almost no decisions. I mean, there are some, but it is not many. I mean, it's funny, Larry, because sometimes I'll sit down with people and Jonathan Swan had a great question of Leader McConnell a few months ago. And what's the moral red line? I asked that to a lot of people, sometimes publicly, sometimes privately. What's your moral red line? And for many people, it's blurred in politics. It's a blurred line. Um, And so we're going to have to see if the Republican Party continues down the road of Trumpism in all of its forms. Uh, those who have opposed him uh, will find themselves even more on the outside of that of that party. But politics is always evolving, always changing. And those people who oppose Trump could end up becoming coming back in some way into power, into elected office. Should there be a real change in the way voters uh, handle things inside the Republican Party? Uh, and you just think to, both of the parties have gone through convulsions perhaps not as significant as this Trump convulsion we've seen in the GOP. We haven't seen something like that in the Democratic Party in a long time. But parties change, and they can also kind of come back in different directions. So I'm not prepared to say that all of these who have opposed Trump are going to constantly be on the fringe. If Trumpism becomes legally clouded in 2023, 2024, and uh, Liz Cheney runs and seems credible, or someone like her who's a little bit more distant from Trump, For example, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin is not someone who's distant from Trump, but he's not a wholehearted Trump person in terms of his political rhetoric out there every day talking about making America great again. And so he's someone who's presenting himself as a Trump ally of sorts, but not a Trump fervent disciple. Uh, How this all moves will be very interesting to track. Bob Costa, chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News and scholar at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.